0: And everybody gets it back again Don't take no mess at the Rose Garden Pays us there on fire They're what we desire The men in black can handle
1: it Other teams can struggle it How they win that game today There's just one thing you can, you can say How oh, did Scotty shoot that three? Believe me, it, it ain't easy How did Brian jump so sweet? Believe me, it, it ain't easy It's the flying dog that's in your lap Welcome back to the Rose Garden Report podcast. I am Sean Hyken, the author of the Rose Garden Report newsletter, which you can subscribe to at rosegardenreport.com. Free and paid subscriptions are available. I've got a good episode for you today from the podcast, which you can get on Apple, Spotify, everywhere else you usually get podcasts. Again, make sure you subscribe, rate, review, do all the usual stuff. The Blazers have a few days off here. They just won two games in a row against Utah and Indiana. Damian Lillard's back. They're kind of taking the next couple of days off to rest up because they're so banged up. So not a ton of news right now to get to. But their next game is on Thursday against the Nuggets. And I figured with that being the case, I wanted to bring in my guy adam mares who's one of the guys at dnvr which is a multimedia company that covers all denver sports if you remember i had gerald from phnx on here to talk about the suns about a month ago it's part of the same greater company and kind of the same type of deal but adam's a guy i've known for a long long time and a really good guy knows the nuggets extremely well and We talk about a lot of things. First, The first thing we talk about was this documentary that the DNVR crew made this summer where they actually all went to Serbia, like a crew of four or five of them, to kind of explore the region and explore like that country's relationship with basketball and more specifically with Nikola Jokic. It's a really interesting documentary. It's on YouTube for free. It's only an hour long. I'm actually – when I post this online, I'm going to embed it. You, like embed the YouTube so that you can just click on the link in this post and watch it from there. and It's it's great. You should do it. It's totally worth your time. And then we get kind of into some more general Nuggets stuff and kind of why people are maybe not as high locally in Denver on the team as maybe it would look from the outside. We talk about some of the cultural stuff with their, you know, being a new front office there with uh, Calvin Booth replacing Tim Connolly. We talk about Nicola Jokic's personality. We get it, a lot of interesting stuff there. So got that coming up. Uh, I'm going to have another episode later this week. And I've got some big stuff. I've kind of hinted at this in the past. I still kind of have to hint at it and talk around it because nothing is really finalized yet. But I've got some big stuff coming up with the podcast that I'm hoping to be able to announce next week. So make sure you're subscribed on Apple and Spotify and any other podcast platform. Do all the usual stuff, subscribe, rate, review. And again, rosegardenreport.com for a subscription to the newsletter, free or paid. I've got some big stuff for paid subscribers coming up. I've got a couple of trips I'm going on later this month that I hope are going to lead to some cool content. So just kind of keep locked into everything I'm doing. I've got some big stuff coming up, but let's get to my conversation now with Adam Mares of DNVR. How are you doing, Adam? Thanks for doing this.
0: Oh, I'm doing good, man. Busy as always. Um, not enjoying the Nuggets as much as I typically do, though. I got I to gotta come out hot with that one right out, <laughs> right out of the bat.
1: So we're going to get to that. We're going to get to some Blazers and Nuggets stuff because they play each other later in this week, and I think both teams are in kind of an interesting place right now. But I want to start with the documentary. Okay. Because I just watched the documentary. It's called 100 Invisible Threads, and it – you. Know, DNVR production, you guys went to Serbia to basically explore the culture and explore, you know, their relationship with basketball, obviously because of the Jokic connection. I, it's, it's free on YouTube. Anybody can watch it. I watched it about a week ago. So I want to start with that because where did you guys, I just, I just want to know kind of where do you guys get the idea to do this? Why, you know, why did you decide to do it now? And like, and you know, what, what just kind of give me like an idea of like kind of what went into this because it was a really ambitious looking production and you guys, Sent a ton of people over there. The production is really good. Like all the stuff you guys kind of did, I thought was really, you know, it was, it was really cool and interesting and kind of a unique type of content. So just kind of, if you could kind of give me a little bit of the backstory of the documentary.
0: The backstory is, uh, you know, we had planned to go to Serbia for a couple of years. In fact, before the pandemic, I think was when the idea originally came to us because it, we have so many Serbian followers and obviously Jokic being Serbian. We wanted to go out there and we just thought it would be cool, not really with any plan in place, but just let's go out there, meet some of our fans, learn something about Serbia and just have an experience and see what comes of it. And then the pandemic happened, obviously, that delayed it. But when we got our first opportunity to go out there this this summer, you know, it was thrown together. I think we bought our tickets two and a half weeks before we actually went out there. So it kind of was a not a lot. And I love that there wasn't a huge opportunity to plan anything. Um, I knew we were gonna go out there and shoot some vlogs. And actually the vlogs had, you know, blew up way more than the documentary has. I think there was like a half a million views or something, but combined between four travel vlogs, just kind of our day-to-day. What are what are we doing out there? And so we knew we were gonna do that. And then I set up a series of interviews that I was able to get through various contacts, and I thought, let's just do these interviews. I didn't even know what to ask, you know, just kind of a let's just talk to some of these people and see where the conversation goes. And we'll see what our story is going to be. If we're going to make one big st- piece of content, one big, I, at that time, I didn't know if it'd be a documentary or a short or what. And after going out there and doing some of these interviews, it was really with the guy Milo Jovanović, who's kind of the star of this. He's right. a Serbian basketball historian. After talking to him, I was like, this is our story. We got to tell this story and weave it into our experience uh, and, and weave it into Nikola Jokic and all those other things. And that'll be the documentary. So the idea came organically and I didn't know what it was going to be until we were out there.
1: Was there any, ever any talk or any chance of getting Jokic for the documentary?
0: Um, you know, yes, I, I talked to him. I emailed him before we went out there and just said, hey, man, we're, this is a thing that's happened. I actually talked to him at the end of the season and said, we're going out there. And he's like, "Oh, OK, cool, whatever. And then right before we went out there, uh, I emailed him and basically just said, like, hey, man, we're going to Sambor. I know that's sort of your safe haven, you know, his little town. I was like, is there anywhere you don't want us to go? Because I don't want to feel like paparazzi. You know, I don't want to go out there, even though, you know, some of this stuff, you know, is always all fair game. But I didn't want him to feel like we were trouncing around his backyard. And he wrote me back and said, You can go anywhere you want. You can talk to anyone you want, but I'm not going to give an interview. I'll be with the national team. I'm not, I'm not talking. So I knew we weren't going to get him.
1: So you were emailing directly with Nikola Jokic and not with like his agent or his representative.
0: <laughs> correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. That's that,
1: <laughs> that's you don't really hear about that a lot. You don't. You don't really. I don't know for whatever reason you don't really hear about a lot about like NBA players emailing. You just hear like you know this reporter texted them or whatever. Whatever. Like, so Nikola Jokic is an email guy.
0: Um. I mean, Nikola Jokic, I don't think is a communications guy. <laughs> like, right. I don't no, think I, he that wants, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I don't think he's a text guy to, or or any of that stuff. But I just knew with how this was thrown together, um. You know, I just knew, OK, I'm going to reach out directly to him. And I talked to Nuggets PR as well. You know, I have a good relationship with all of uh, everybody involved. Let him know the people that I was doing interviews with, what all, all that kind of stuff. And was just basically saying, again, this is your off time. I knew he was with the national team and I didn't want him to feel like obligated, obviously, to do it. But let him know, hey, this is a thing. Do you want to participate? He said, no, thanks. And then is there anything off limits? He said, no, go wherever you want. And we did. We went to, I think, some places that surprised him that we were able to find.
1: And you know, did you did you time it intentionally around uh, the national team? Because you, you were there kind of during the national team qualifier games for Eurobasket this summer. Uh, did you time that intentionally? Or was it just like you guys happened to be there while they were playing those games, so you might as well go check those games out too?
0: A little bit of both. And we got so lucky in so many ways, but originally we were going to start the trip with that game. Um, we're going to go out there and that would be the first thing we did. And then after that, we would go out for a week. And because that lined up a little bit better with some other people's schedules who we wanted to see and talk to, um, we had to change it to go early and end with that game. And in hindsight, it was the best thing. I mean, this trip, honestly felt like an act of God in so many different ways. How many things came together for us so beautifully, like not just from the documentary standpoint, but just from a trip standpoint, the trip in many ways was as interesting as the documentary. You know, even though there's a lot of crossover there, um, the trip itself was really interesting and it was so perfect because we go out there and we do a week's worth of activities and a week's worth of learning and interviews. And like, we're just learning all these different things and it made the experience of the game that much more rich because, had we just gone right into it, I wouldn't have known who all these people were at the arena and sitting courtside. And I wouldn't have had a great context for what this game meant, you know, this or that. By the time we had spent the week there and done all the experiences we had, sitting in that arena just felt like so much more meaningful to us. And that's really what the documentary was about in many ways was, hey, we had this experience. I want you guys to see and go on the journey we went through where we learned about all of these things and then sort of end it with that game so you feel a sense of like, wow, now I get why this was an important event i I get some of the context and everything else to it and not just from Nikola's standpoint but also from the people that were in the stands the serbian people why is this such a big event to them and hopefully the documentary captured that well
1: what was so wild to me was you guys go to serbia and you know you show some stuff in the doc i don't know if this was like selective editing or what but it looked to me like you guys were getting like a celebrity welcome from the locals oh my god wind and uh dev and 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 like all the dnv arc
0: You have no idea, Sean. Like, it was crazy. I mean, I tell people this, that we went on the national television morning shows twice, you know, basically Good Morning America and the Today Show, like competing morning programs that are on the two biggest stations out there. Um, You know, we were in the newspaper every single day. Basically, the newspapers out there were following our every move. Like, hey, this is where DNVR was today. Here's where they are tomorrow. Here's what they're doing. Here's the latest updates. All of our tweets went viral and we have a big following out there because it's a sports nation and you know right. they're following nicole so they're following us because we're at least the ability to reach outside of denver we're, we're sort of positioned for that we're not local television where it's kind of contained more locally so we had a big following out there but it grew tenfold while we were out there because we just it, everything started going viral and, um, every, every little thing that we did so that by the first couple days, you know, our people knew us and they'd meet us, we did some meetups, but by halfway through that trip, we walking down, you know, the streets of, of Belgrade, everybody <laughs> knew who we were. Every restaurant we walked into, it was like, Oh my God, here's DNVR. Like, come in, come in. So it was to say celebrity. I mean, it, it's not an understatement. It was really, it was really cool and really bizarre.
1: It's always interesting to me when that kind of, cause when, you know, when there's a, a an NBA, especially like a, you know, a player of Nikola Jokic's level, you know, a two-time MVP and one of the best players in the league, who's from a country where there aren't a ton of NBA players. Just how rabid, like I I remember one year I was covering the finals. I think this was like one of the first two Cavs Warriors finals. And they ended up just seating me next to this reporter from Germany who was just there covering the finals, and he was telling me that everybody in Germany—this is like five or six years ago when Dirk was still playing—but he was telling me that like everybody in Germany is a is a Mavericks fan because of Dirk, and like right. I've known like in the past that like you know in the mid two thousands like every like all of China was Rockets fans because of Yao, so right. it's always like right, right. that kind of actually even like on a smaller level, I, a couple weeks ago the Nets were in Portland to play the Blazers. And I met a woman who was covering the game for a Japanese outlet and she was telling me that they just sent them all – like, like like she gets sent to all Nets games basically just to follow you to Watanabe. And he's like – you know, he's not a star on Nikola Jokic's level, but it's always interesting to me how like whenever there's a uh, – you know, a player from one of these countries that doesn't like have, you know, 15 NBA players in it that – the locals just completely glom onto them. That's always like, it's always been interesting and kind of cool to me. And you guys actually kind of got into a lot of that with, uh, you know, you, you go back into some of the, uh, stuff from like the, yeah, Sacramento and Vlade and draws and Petrovich and all that stuff. Yeah.
0: No, yeah, totally. It's funny. Our mutual friend, Kirk Henderson, um, told me one that the number one, uh, article all time on Mavs Moneyball was about some preseason game that featured a Filipino prospect oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh it's yeah. like it's just like the, the entire Philippines read their article and so it just it just spiked their numbers so much but um but no for Jokic it's very much that way and there's actually a lot of Serbian players you know professional basketball players it's a big sport out there so you do have your Bielitsas and your Bogdanoviches and what, what have you and but what's funny is that Jokic really is the like you know, he's the best one and not always the most beloved one. There can be extra, extra critical of him because expectations are so high for right. him. But um he is it is like Sacramento. That's what I love about the documentary. I think I did a good job of showing this was for Serbia. Sacramento was the first team that they latched onto. They would follow players player by player or whatever. But you're not really a fan of the team. But Sacramento was the first one where, like, that's our team. I'm a Sacramento Kings fan.
1: Well, that was such a fun team, those Vladi, Chris Webber, Mike yeah. Bibby teams. Too. And
0: Peja. I mean, that's why. I mean, yeah. you get two two of the most important players are both Serbian. So it, it kind of, like, you know, obviously doubled everything. And then Vladi has a special place in Serbian's hearts as well. Like, even Jokic. You Know, um, for being a greater player, like Vlade was, was in some ways a more important player because of just the gold medals that he won and the time in which he came over and, and all the just kind of being the pioneer. So that team definitely latched on, but I feel like Denver has better than any team since Sacramento sort of captured Serbia's heart as a team collectively as well.
1: That is interesting and for everybody so for everybody out there listening cuz i feel like most of my audience probably isn't like keeping up with like day to day denver nuggets stuff and might not follow you guys might not follow dnvr this documentary is just on youtube you, you don't have to pay to rent it or pay to watch it or be on any streaming service just and in fact when i post this online i'm going to just embed the youtube so everybody can just see it so it's just for free on YouTube, so you guys should all go watch this documentary. It's really cool. It's only an hour long, so it's not like a full, you know, feature length thing. But it's—I watched it a week ago. It's—I think it's worth your guys' time. I want to transition now into actual, you know, current nugget stuff because just looking at it from the outside, right now, Denver—they're fourteen and nine. They're fourth in the West. They're half a game out of—they're only a game and a half out of first. They're. It would seem like, you know, things things are going pretty well for them, but you said at the top that you're not enjoying the Nuggets right now. I know they had a couple <laughs> of bad losses. They just lost to Atlanta without Trey Young and then they lost to New Orleans the other night. I saw part of that game, but what what what's going on then? Like why like why why did you have that reaction when I said I wanted to talk about current Blazers and Nuggets stuff?
0: Um it's not it actually is is a silly thing, but you know this, man, there's so many different NBA experiences you can have. Right. And the trying to get over the hump, that final step in the climb is often like cumbersome and uh-huh. not less enjoyable because totally. your expectations are so high. The little wins don't feel that big. You know, you're just you're looking for that big prize at the end. And so everything, every little up and down is judged through the lens of are they ready to compete with the Celtics and the and the Suns and the Warriors and this or that. And so as much as Denver is has looked very good i think they're third or something in the in the west right now and they've barely been at home i think they have the most road games of anybody in the nba
1: i think portland might have might have some competition there they've had a bunch
0: oh well, take a look i'm curious to see um cuz denver has like 18 of the next 24 or something like that at home so they're they're it's all going to catch up here in the next little stretch but whatever it is it's just It had you're judging it all by, well, they don't look good defensively and they've had a lot of injuries and Jamal Murray's not quite back and Michael Porter's back out of the lineup and all the little things that usually you wouldn't mind. It's just like, okay that's the ebbs and flows. Now you're just sitting there waiting for I want to see it. I want to see this team look like a championship contender. And they really haven't yet.
1: So the so just to update you on the road game thing, I think so the Nuggets have the Blazers beat by one game. Take that. And they're exactly – but then the Blazers actually, they have this three games left on this four-game homestand, and then they go on another six-game road trip before Christmas. (laughs) And then the month of January, they're like all at home. They have like 10 or 11 home games in the month of January. So,
0: It's the West Coast, man. I'm telling you, like it's it's the West Coast teams. Portland is as bad as anyone for this, but Denver and Utah are right there where they're so far away from everyone that the schedule inevitably is unbalanced. Like a lot of teams – It's not that big of a deal to go on a two-game road trip when you're in Detroit and you just have to go to Minnesota and, you know, whatever, Wisconsin, because it's not that far of a trip. But for Denver and for Portland, you might as well make all your road trips eight-game road trips, six-game road trips, four, because it just takes so much effort to go across the country.
1: Well, we're both in cities where it would not be possible to go cover an away game without flying. Right, yeah. Because, yep. like, I was and I was thinking about this in the preseason because the Blazers actually played a preseason game up in Seattle, and that's like a three-hour drive, and I made that drive, and it was great. And I was just thinking to myself, I really wish Seattle had a team so I could, you know, go cover games up there more regularly because that's a pretty easy drive to make. But the closest team to Portland is Sacramento, and that – I mean, you theoretically could do that drive in one day, but that's, like, not really worth it. Like, so what, what's the closest – team to what's the closest NBA city to Denver is it Salt Lake or is it Phoenix it's Utah
0: no it's Utah. yeah it's not that far from Utah I mean those are the two and that's why and it's one thing that sucks is the NBA has determined rightfully so that that Salt Lake City Denver back-to-back is the hardest back-to-back in all sports which is because of the elevation because of the elevation and and you know whatever but what sucks is they've more or less eliminated that from teams but now that swings the other direction to where like, you know, every back-to-back with travel is hard. So to take that away from Denver and Utah, it's like almost swinging too far in the other direction.
1: Giving them like not having that advantage where the other team is going to be. Right. They, so they kick. never yeah.
0: get that. So they never get that. they almost <laughs> never get that advantage. It's like, Oh, that's, that sucks.
1: That's, that's, that's funny. So uh, going back, yeah, so you, you mentioned Jamal Murray a little bit. I only saw the nuggets in person once so far this season. And that was like the second or third, third game of the season Portland blew him out and at the early part of the season Jamal was still looking pretty rough and he was looking pretty rusty after missing the whole season with the torn ACL you've seen them more obviously regularly than I have you've watched every game I've just watched you know I've watched maybe a game of theirs once a week or once one and a half games a week just kind of here and there because I try to keep up with every team and it's looked to me by and large like Jamal has started to look a little bit more like himself in the last few weeks, more so than he did at the beginning of the season. Where would you say he's kind of at right now?
0: Um, I I mean, I think he looks, he's very effective. He's back. He's inconsistent, which is hard to say is that because of the injury and where he's back in his recovery, he was kind of an inconsistent player before he got hurt, to be honest with you, where those highs were really high and he seemed to always reach his pinnacle going into the playoffs and, and, both of his playoff seasons, and even right before he got hurt, I think it was January or February, or maybe it was March, he was starting to get that again, where it was like, okay, every night you're starting to get 25-point per game, Jamal, or higher.
1: Well, there was that like, two-week stretch like right after they did the Aaron Gordon trade, but before he tore his ACL, he was where they were looking like the best team in the league, and he was a big part of that.
0: He had a 50-point game with yeah. no free throws. <laughs> like It was <laughs> incredible. I think he only missed three or four shots the entire game. I think it was 21-25 or something uh-huh. like that. Which is just an insane game. So he was he was back at that peak. So when I judge him, when people ask me, is he back? He's kind of back to what he was before the injury and before he started to round into form right before the injury, which is to say he's had some 30 po- he's had a 30 point game and he's had some quarters where he takes over and looks like the best player on the court. But then he has some games where he's kind of unnoticed, you know, you don't notice him. He's had some like four for 17 games and what have you. Um, I think the thing that's about the Nuggets and it's Jamal Murray is the poster child of how do you describe the season, but um, it's not, he's not the only one is that the Nuggets started off a little bit slow. You know, they got blown out by Utah, as you mentioned, we got blown out by Portland, right. um, but then they started to get their footing and it's like, okay, this team is starting to look good. And then they got hit with COVID and illness and they lost bones Highland and Jokic and Murray and Aaron Gordon and Michael Porter, like all at the same, you know, all in the same stretch. And so they played this one week after really getting a rhythm and they started to look like, oh, my God, this team is what we thought we were. they were. They get into the stretch where they're just not playing any of their guys for a week. And then they come back and Michael Porter's still out. He had a heel contusion. But since but since coming back, it's kind of felt like another start, a second start where they won four in a row. They didn't necessarily look great, but they started to get something going. Now they've lost two in a row. But it just feels to me like they had to hit reset about 12 games into the season when when they were just starting to get a rhythm. So hopefully – this week or maybe it's next week when they start their their extended homestand which basically lasts a month hopefully they start to find a rhythm again because their highs have been very impressive they just haven't been sustained for very long
1: well portland's kind of been hit with that too i mean not not with covid but they've just had so many guys in and out of the lineup dame has missed a couple of different stints with the calf thing nurk has missed a couple of games anthony simons like every single one of their rotation players the Blazers has missed at least one game at various points with some sort of injury right now. They've for the most part got everybody, but that's like a recent thing. And even that is like Josh Hart's ankle is kind of iffy and just all, there's there's all this, all this kind of stuff going on. I mean, that's, that's the NBA. That's just the season, but it's kind of a similar thing to where, you know, Portland starts off 10 and four. They're like the hot them and, and Utah were like the two biggest surprises in the league. And then, After that, they lost seven of eight. They've kind of started to right the ship a little bit, but the NBA schedule is long, man. And you got to just kind of go through the, you know, the ups and downs and not feel like the sky is falling after every rough patch. That's kind of what I've been trying to tell fans as, you know, the Blazers went on this little losing streak the last couple of weeks that, you know, they're probably fine, but it's just, you know, it's 82 games is a lot.
0: It is. And then I think every team, it's funny, man, once you get outside of your own team, you realize how much every team has the exact same experience, questioning the rotations, questioning the coach, questioning, you know, if this guy can stay healthy or that guy can stay healthy. And it's every, it's just every single team in the world right now. Um, Denver. So, so yeah, like, I don't know, there's no juggernauts out West. I think Denver's really good. I imagine Portland feels like they're really good.
1: They feel like they feel great about where and i I've been saying since the schedule came out because of just how road heavy it was at the beginning and how heavy it was on good teams that if they could get to 500 at Christmas, they're in great shape right now they're thirteen and eleven and they have this one big road trip coming up before Christmas and then after that it's a lot of home games and a lot of games against teams that we're expecting to be tanking so I think they're in pretty good shape I think just from the outside i now that I'm not at an outlet where I Have to be doing predictions all the time and be held to them. I try to avoid doing predictions, but I'm pretty sure I pick I mean, I have to go back and look because like, again, I don't really care about predictions. I don't really, you know, try to, you know, be held to them. But I'm pretty sure I picked Denver to win the West before the season started. And I still don't feel like that's crazy.
0: I mean, yeah, they just we just got to see him, you know, Michael, right, like I, like totally, I said, yeah. I just have I feel like I haven't seen the thing that I was waiting to see, which is right. Michael Porter and Jabal Murray and Nikola Jokic all together. And then how see serious is the
1: are. Porter thing? Is that is, is he going to yeah. be out for a while or we
0: don't know. So it's a heel contusion, which you would think, OK, wake maybe two weeks. And now we're here at the two week mark, I believe, from when he last played. And, you know, I expect again, they have a home game tonight road game on Thursday at Portland. I think after that, I would expect an update. If we don't get an update then, I think it'll probably be one of those, all right, this is weird. Two two plus weeks for a hill contusion. Like, is this a thing we should expect to linger for a month or or, or something? So we'll see. I, we were told originally it probably wasn't that serious, but but we'll have to wait and see.
1: No, so sounds like again, sounds like a Portland thing where Gary Payton the second has not played yet this year because he had the core muscle surgery, their big free agent signing of the summer. And they originally said he'd be ready to go at the start of the season and then they just kind of keep pushing it back two weeks and then pushing it back two weeks and from what i've heard he hasn't had any setbacks but they just haven't they haven't cleared into play yet and i think it should be coming at some point soon but it's just like you said man every team is dealing with the same exact stuff just over the course of the year that you know you're gonna have a stretch where you you know I, the only time I could think of that didn't go through some kind of rough patch during the regular season was like that 73-win Warriors year where they started the year off 25-0 and 0 and then were just fine like the whole way.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what you were hoping for, like for Denver at least. You know, they've been good. They won 48 games last year without Murray or Porter. So your whole yeah. hope was that this would be the year where, okay, if that's their floor, what's their ceiling when you bring those guys back? And like I said, it still might be that. Um, there's been moments where you go like, oh, yeah, this team's unstoppable. And some of the numbers even – that starting lineup with Denver is one of the best in all of the NBA. The only problem is it it, it hasn't played now for three or four weeks. So um, they still might be that. And I think that's what the disappointment is this year is you have this belief that this team might be something, and we don't know yes or no yet. And I'm not sure if we're going to know that for like another month or so.
1: And the depth seems like it's kind of shaky. Like why hasn't Bruce Brown been better? Because that was a guy that Portland, like they were basically deciding between Gary Payton and Bruce Brown, and they ended up going with Gary Payton. And the, those were the two guys they were kind of looking at in that mid-level spot. And I thought when the Den- when Denver got him for the taxpayer mid-level, I thought that was one of the best signings of the summer. And he looked really good at the beginning of the season, but it just it hasn't really been there since then. Like, what's going on with him?
0: It's funny that you say that because I think he's actually been really good. I mean, he's at eleven points, which is uh, a career high he's playing 30 minutes which is great he's shooting 40 percent from the three-point line which is really good his defense i think when you say uh, the thing that you're probably noticing is his like plus minus is on off plus minus
1: yeah that's the thing because defensively he's supposed to be like this big impact guy
0: and i don't know positive. that he's a big impact guy defensively and then denver i mean there's something too they added i mean th- objectively speaking better defenders when you talk about kcp replacing. Um, you know, uh, Barton, that's an uh, upgrade. Like there's no question about it. You can watch it. I test whatever it is. It, it's an upgrade, but yet Denver's defense has gone backwards a lot. And I know most people will say, well, that's the Jokic effect, you know, whatever, but it's actually th- like every season. It's the other, it's the non Jokic minutes that are weighing down Denver's defensive rating so much. Um, he, he's like above the average right now for Denver. So I think what's happening with Bruce Brown though, is he's the guy that is brought in to fix every bad lineup. And I don't think he's capable of doing that. So I think part of his numbers, they don't necessarily match his impact. They match the fact that it's like, we need a little defense, so we're going to put have him play the three or the four. That you know We're going to have him play something. Oh, we need an extra ball handler. There was, a again, a week or a week and a half stretch there where they didn't have Jamal Murray, Bones Highland, Ish, or Ish Smith, so they had no point guard. So who's the point guard for both the starters and the second unit? It's Bruce Brown. Well, that's not really fair to him. That's not his position. So I think my hunch is, That has more to do with his on his numbers, his on off numbers than anything, because I think individually he's actually been pretty good, although I will agree with you. I think defensively he's probably pretty overrated as an impact guy.
1: I think it's just because he was basically the only guy on that Brooklyn team last year that could defend. So he was kind of talked up as like he's like one of the best defenders in the league. And again, he's somebody that Portland looked at pretty hard. And I think if 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 the Warriors had decided they were willing to pay the luxury tax to keep Gary Payton, I think that was the next place they would have gone.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think he would have been good there. (laughs) You know, it's 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 just one of those things where I think it's circumstantial. I think he'll be good in Denver too. They just Denver needs to normalize. They do need to figure out their bench. Bones Highland is such a big piece of their bench, and he has been out of the lineup more than anyone else. So, um, uh, again, another big question about Denver is who? What is their like top eight nine guys? We still don't know that twenty four games into the season or whatever it is.
1: What's the deal with? Because so so earlier today i was listening to you know because i'm a good host and i like to prepare things before i have people on the show okay i went back and listened to both the most recent dnvr nuggets podcast that you did with wind and dev
0: and it's a hot one spicy both. one spiciest one of the year
1: oh it was it was it was and i also went back and i listened to the most recent locked on that you did with matt And would it be fair to say that the biggest issue that like the Nuggets, you know, followers and fans have right now with the rotation and with Michael Malone and, you know, with, you know, and everything else kind of in that realm is the Zeke Nagy thing.
0: I I think Christian Brown, more than Zeke Nagy, Zeke Nagy is more of a mystery. Um, Uh He's a guy that's like, you know how it is. Anytime you have a prospect, um, you kind of want to see what they have. Especially when
1: it's a first round pick,
0: a first round pick in particular. And I think Zeke has actually shown some stuff in his his couple of years, but it for various reasons has never stayed on the court. Some of that injury luck, and some of that, um, you know, Malone just has guys that he clearly, like all coaches, or I shouldn't say all coaches, but like most coaches, Michael Malone has his guys that he just is more comfortable with than others, whether they're more effective or not.
1: Well, he's kind of in that Tibbs Rick Carlisle mode; where like he doesn't really trust young players that much. Or like 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 there will be exceptions, obviously, but like he doesn't trust young players that much, and he always will. More air on the side of
0: Jokic even came off the bench in his second season. Like right, no, yeah, like it takes,
1: He's one of those guys, and like, and you know, the Blazers' uh, previous head coach Terry Stotts was like this in Portland when he was here. There were always fans just like clamoring for more Anthony Simons, clamoring for more Nasir Little, and like I don't know. There was like Chauncey Billups so far. You know, you've seen how much he's played Shaden Sharp, and you know how much he's been willing to trust young guys. He seems like he's kind of the opposite. But for a long time here the Blazers had a coach that wouldn't really play young guys at all. Even CJ didn't play that much his rookie year. Like Dame was a different thing because he was drafted to be the franchise guy and they weren't trying to win that year. So they just gave him the keys. But a lot of coaches are like that. A lot. I mean, for better or worse, and you can land wherever you want to land on, you know, whether it's better to, you know, give these young guys a shot, even if you're trying to contend and you can't really afford to let them play through mistakes or, or if you want to just like trust the veterans, there are assists. There are some coaches who are like that.
0: I think that the one of the things that factors into that, the fact that it is such a common coaching um, trope, I think uh-huh. one, one of the things is that you get fired by playing rookies and they play poorly. Like that's how right. you get fired. And when you play veterans, I think it's a little bit more of a like, well, the vets aren't playing good. This guy's supposed to be good. We know Jeff Green. We know who that guy is. And this year he wasn't that guy. So what happened? Is it my fault? Whereas if you play a rookie and they're wild and you have, you know, they blow a game in 10 minutes or something like that. It looks really, it reflects really poorly on you. So I think that's part of it. And I think with Michael Malone in particular, he probably has some of those where he's like, how many coaches have gone to their grave because they overplayed a rookie and it came back on. Sometimes, sometimes it's, you know, a front office will tell you, Hey, we want you to develop this guy. And I know coaches look at him like, yeah, you say that now, but then when we lose three games that we weren't supposed to, I get fired. And then, you know, as part of the development. So I think there's a little bit of that with Michael Malone, that he just really trusts the veteran players, and um, it's the least risky thing for him in terms of how he can defend how the season goes. But at the same time, Calvin... The interesting thing about the Nuggets this year is that they swapped Tim Conley and Calvin Booth. Calvin Booth's now in the driver's chair. right? And some of this stuff, I think, is overstated because I think Tim Conley was likely to bring in some more defensive-minded players. It was just time for that to happen. But nonetheless, Calvin has been very aggressive, not just in getting Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Bruce Brown, but also adding a Christian Brown, also trying to elevate a Zeke Nagy. And the fact that those two guys haven't cracked the rotation and you're 26th in defense, that's sort of the frustration coming from Nuggets right now is you have some defensive options. It's clearly a thing that the front office is, is, appears to be interested in. Play these guys because you need to put defense around them. They're not playing them and they're not defending And, you know, I think that that's where there's some tension right now in Denver.
1: So do you think it could be end up being a situation, not necessarily during the season, because I don't think the nuggets are going to be bad enough to make a coaching change during the season. But do you think maybe this summer, if maybe they lose in the second round and they aren't, you know, in the conference finals or in the finals, they might just decide just that not that Michael Malone is doing a bad job necessarily, because he's a really good coach and he's been a really good coach for a long time, but. They might just decide that where his priorities are and where the organization's priorities are are just kind of not on the same page. Is that something that's maybe in play?
0: I mean, of course, that is not Michael Malone specific. That's the Denver Nuggets specific. He's been here eight years.
1: It's a long time for a head coach. Outside of like Pop and Spolster, like almost no coach lasts that long.
0: And those last two years kind of don't count, right? Because there was no Jamal Murray, no Michael Porter. Like you knew Denver wasn't going to win a title, but now it's you're at the point where the clock's ticking. It's not extremely urgent. We're not on Jokic's last legs, but you're at a point where it's like, okay, he's 27. This is when you want to start competing for real. And you have to figure out what pieces fit and what pieces don't. And you have to make hard choices. So I, you, everybody always asks me that, like, if they don't make the Western conference finals, is that the goal? You have to get there or else. And I don't think it is. I think it's a variety. It's how does it happen? And one of the ways that I think Michael Malone should be most concerned, and I'm sure he is most concerned, is it doesn't matter where you go, conference finals, second round, first round. If you're the 26th best defense, if you're the fifth worst defense in the NBA, despite getting guys that you personally wanted to be brought in to improve your defense, if you're still the fifth worst defense in the NBA, that's going to be the thing. And then if you go into a playoffs and you look, completely inept defensively you can't get the team to execute a game plan or there's just no hope it's going to come down to okay well we got to find somebody who can and you know that that's going to be the big question around denver is uh, it's not about how far they go it's can are you the guy that is going to get them good enough defensively because we already know offensively on autopilot this team is a top five team
1: i'm glad you brought up the calvin booth thing because just like portland i mean obviously under very different circumstances there wasn't a investigation into a toxic workplace environment in Denver that brought about a front office change. but there was a pretty significant front office change this spring where Tim Connolly took the Minnesota job and then they elevated Kelvin Booth to his uh, old spot. I, how much of how much has changed kind of with the nuggets, you know organizationally and with their process for because it was an internal thing. It wasn't like they brought in somebody from the outside who had a completely different philosophy. Booth had kind of been in-house for several years and kind of knew how they did things and was a part of building the last teams. And it is it is kind of a similar situation in some ways to the Portland situation where Neil Olshay gets fired about a year ago. Again, very different circumstances than Tim Connolly just getting a way better offer. And Joe Cronin, who has been in the front office, honestly predating Neil, he's been there since 2006, gets elevated. And then he just completely turns the roster over and completely changes the culture and like everything about the organization. And so, it, it, so you you would think that like just because somebody's in house, like they're going to kind of continue it and just kind of do stuff the same way. How much of a difference has there been between the way that Tim Connolly did things and the way that Calvin Booth does things?
0: Completely different. Okay. Both both culturally um, and also I think you know obviously we bring in different people. I mean, the number one thing. Let's just start here. This is true, not of Calvin Booth. It's true of every circumstance. Tim Conley hired Michael Malone. Calvin Booth did not. Calvin Booth arrived after a Michael Malone. So even when you start there, and that's the same for guys like the roster, most of those guys were brought in by Tim Conley, not by Calvin Booth. He was there for some of it. And I, I bet half of the roster you could look at and say, yeah, Calvin was there. So whether it was his pick or whether he was against or for or whatever, at least he was in the room when those decisions were made. But half the roster wasn't. So there's a natural sort of, I'm in charge now. I need to do what's best for the team. I'm going to have different opinions than the guy before me. But then culturally to me is the biggest thing is that, you know, Calvin and Tim are almost opposite personalities. And I think they fit together very well. I mean, they're, they're very close um, and we and work together very closely, but they were very different. And maybe it was the balance of those two voices that led them to successes or, or, or what have you. But Calvin is just very, very different in his approach than Tim Conley in a, in a variety of ways not just in the oh he brought in defensive guys or this or that but i think even just more being process oriented whereas tim conley i think was a little bit more gut feeling you know like hey let's make this let's simple let's not overthink things let's simplify things i think calvin booth is a lot more of a let's make processes let's this is how we're going to evaluate this and we'll state our goals going in and if we don't reach them then let's not change our opinion just because it felt right or this or that so i think I, i think that's the cultural difference and I think also Calvin Booth, Tim Conley ran this like a family, man. He had those every player on staff he or every player on the roster he'd have over for dinner and he knew him personally and this or that. I think Calvin comes from a different, a little bit of a different philosophy in terms of, hey, I, I everybody know I'm going to have to make some really uncomfortable decisions. And I, he, I think he's a little bit more prepared to make those that might shock the fan base, might shock the coach, might shock the players. I think he just knows, hey, when you're trying to win it all, there's shocking decisions to be made sometimes.
1: What are some of the shocking decisions that are going to have to be made? I assume you know the coach situation down the sure. line might be one of them, but what like like what else are you talking about? Like who are we talking about trading here? I mean, uh, I'm not
0: again. They, they've only tra- <laughs> they've only traded away Monte Morris and Will Barton, and I think neither of those guys to me were shocking. Although Will Barton has come out and said he was shocked when it happened. Those guys but were
1: there for a long time, though.
0: Will Barton more than anyone. I mean, he was there since 2000. I think 14, um, uh,
1: 15, because that was the tra- that was, it was yeah, a trade.
0: It was a trade, but was it fourteen or fifty? I think it was. 15. It, was, it, I think was you're it was fifteen yeah. because
1: it was, it was. It was. It was. He came over trade from deadline. Portland. It was the Aaron yeah. Aflalo trade, and that was because that was the year that uh, that was the last year of the Lamarcus Batum West Matthews right. yeah. group. Wait, and isn't they that traded, crazy? And they <laughs> well, yeah, and they traded for Aflalo to be a six man, and then two weeks later, Wesley Matthews tore his yep. Achilles, and Aflalo had to start, and it didn't go. Bad well.
0: luck, but, yeah, bad. That's a yeah. bad break. Um. Anyway, yeah. So, Br- Will Barton, and those two weren't, but the thing I mean by that is. And again, this is just me talking. This is my perspective on it. This is not like an inside intel or anything, but right. you know, you look at who is untradeable on this roster. And I think if you would have asked Tim Conley that he might've given you a list of, you know, three, four players, maybe five. He would have said, yeah, but why would we ever do that? And I think if you ask Calvin, he'd say one, I think just Jokic. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's one player that's untradeable and it's not that he's looking to trade any anybody else. And again, this isn't anything he's told me. This is just the sense I get from reading all of the different tea leaves of things he said publicly, but um, I think that he looks at this as, hey, you have Jokic and anybody else that comes up short, you have to be honest and say, hey, we have to build a great defense around him first and foremost, because we saw last year that was a team that could score. They want to get in the play. People don't realize this. I think Denver had a 118 offensive rating in their playoff series against the Golden State Warriors, who, by yeah. the way, were tied for the number one defense in the NBA last year or defense in the NBA last year. So you go against the best defense and you put up a 118 offensive rating with Faku, Campazo and Austin Rivers. I don't know that you need to worry too much about your offense. You probably have that solved no matter who you put. It's I think Dallas's philosophy the same way by the way with Luka Doncic and I don't think they're wrong. You do probably need a second star or this or that. But I don't think I think people overestimate how much you need offensive star power along a Doncic, along a Jokic and even along around a LeBron James. You need guys that can defend and guys that can finish, but you don't necessarily need guys that can create.
1: I mean, I definitely feel like Denver's in a better place than Dallas is when I look at the group of guys that they For have sure. around Luka versus the guys that they have around uh, Jokic. I definitely think Denver has more. Ta- I think both ends of the floor. I think Denver has more talent there. It's just a matter of can it gel in time? But, to- but do they
0: have more defensive talent? I mean, this is and this is where it gets and maybe they do as well. I don't know. But my point is, I think that there's a tendency to look at you can't win a championship if x is your best player uh, your second best player and when you say whatever player x is it's often thought about what they're bringing to you offensively and I just don't think that's true. You got a guy that can finish, that can do different things, but I just don't know that like Luca needs a Paul George running mate or, right. you know, somebody of that nature. I think they just need a lot of really good defensive talent. And then what's the a version of Jalen Brunson? Cause that team scored on a lot of people too. So do you need just a slight upgrade over that type of player with Denver? I think it's the same thing. And the Jamal Murray, Jokic two man game is so elite and so deadly. I'm inclined to think that that is the right combination but at the same time, the Monte Jokic two-man game was pretty deadly last year too. And Monte Jokic Moore and anybody
1: said, is going to probably be effective just because Jokic is so good.
0: So I think that's, and I just think that's probably the mentality Calvin Booth is going to, should he stick around for, you know, the, the next two, three seasons? I imagine that's the mentality he's going to take is the Nuggets might get a little uglier, but Jokic can score for anyone. How do we get a team that can be a top 10 defense around him? Um, and, and how do we just put in, an influx of defensive talent on the roster so that, uh, you kind of can autopilot, get a top 10 defense.
1: How have the players generally reacted to these big organizational changes going from Connolly to booth? How is how is how has that impacted the cult? Like in the, like in the locker room? Cause I mean, you're, you're at games, you're around these guys a lot. You, you know, how, how has that kind of gone over that transition?
0: Well, it should be st- stated that the last two years before Conley's departure were the COVID years, so the locker room was actually closed. So, I would say well, I have right, less insight. Well, right, but I mean this year. Um, well, I'm just I'm just trying to say that I have a little bit less insight into that into the last two years, which would have been the most revealing about where Conley was. Because I will right. say this: Conley really is a great people person, and he really is a great like. Um, I, I think that the players genuinely had a, a respect and trust of in, in him and this or that. And I imagine they do with Calvin too, in a different, and different type. I mean, he was a player, you know, there's some, I think GMs who played the game, coaches who played the game, have a little bit of built in trust from players and this or that. Um, but I don't know how to compare them in their final years. I will say this, th- the nuggets did not seem, the players did not seem um, very affected by Conley's departure. It felt more like, yeah, you know, that's the business guys leave. So he's a good guy. We loved him, but, you know, what, what do you want us to say? That's not like a lingering resentment or anything from the organization.
1: Jokic doesn't seem like he's really affected by anything. He just wants <laughs> and, to play basketball and then go home and ride horses in Serbia.
0: And and I think a lot of that is probably an act, not, not an act, but it like it is the way he's chosen to carry himself for better and for worse, by the way, like, you know, I don't think that Nikola has a bunch of say in the organization. He could, if he wanted to, I think he chooses to be like, Hey, that's not my job. So to the is he affected by a Tim Conley thing, you know, whether he is or isn't, I think he's a guy that ver- does a very good job of separating, you know, what, how do I feel versus how do I need to like, what impact do I need to allow my feelings to have on the organization? And I think that's true, by the way, of all of his public persona. A lot of people will say like, oh, he doesn't even like basketball. Or this or that. I, he likes it a lot. Oh, he doesn't even care about being the MVP. He wanted to be MVP. Come on, people. Like, all of these things that get projected onto him are about how he carries himself, and I think that's as important as anything, but I don't think that it's one of those things where he's, like, so emotionally removed from things that he has no thoughts on him. I just think he knows how to compartmentalize those thoughts.
1: He has a pretty kind of underrated dry sense of humor, too, that I think a lot of people don't realize.
0: Totally, and I've, I've always been told this, and you see it, like, the more you cover him, the more you see it. He, um... The language barrier, I think, hides his personality more than anything else because I'll always see people will send me clippings of an interview he does in Serbian and I almost like laugh because I'm like, man, I wish he talked like this in English. Like he's a lot more clever. He's a lot more poetic, I would say. You know, like he has like a, like a, almost like a a very folksy way of looking at a thing that speaks almost entirely in axioms and idioms and different, you know, little puns and stuff. And you don't always get that in the language barrier. But I always see it when he's in another a setting where I'm always like, what a... What a funny way to he's just he has a funny personality.
1: Do you think he's self-aware about like the way he's perceived in the in that way in the NBA? Like, 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 it's kind of like how like in the beginning with Giannis, like the smoothie thing was like a whole thing. And then at a certain point he kind of like became in on the joke. Do you think that's I mean hard? last
0: night, what did he say? He wants to get freaky or something for his birthday. Like, like <laughs> right. Giannis. That's totally Giannis playing Giannis, right? Like Right. He, well, yeah,
1: like what I'm saying is like, do you think do you think Yo Jokic is like in on the joke in that way?
0: I, I think so for sure. Um, I don't think he wants to be in on the joke al- always. I think he knows how to play the Joker. you know. Like it's, right. And I'll tell you this, especially when he goes on ESPN or TNT, like one-on-one of those, you can kind of tell he's channeling that. He's accessing that part of his personality and turning it on for the camera in a way that is like his true self, but he's a, being letting his guard down. Locally here, when he's doing these interviews, it's very rare for him to be like that, I think. And this is the thing that's a blessing and a curse for Jokic. I wish – he was a little bit more open. Like, for example, this documentary, you know, him not wanting to participate. We saw him out there. And by the way, he said he didn't want to do an interview. He actually came over and talked to us for a little bit off record or whatever. But right, of course. J- 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 he did kind of acknowledge us, maybe being Doesn't out there. Doesn't mean he has whatever. an issue
1: with you guys. He just didn't want to do an interview.
0: He just didn't want to do like, And this is what I mean about Yoke, because I think he um, has made the decision at some point early on in his career, probably somewhere around 2018 or so, where he's just not going to share any of that. He's just not going to share it. And I think that's, you know, to each their own. A lot of people, your brand, you know, you need to share something and this that. Like, I don't think he cares one bit about any of those things. And he's like, I'm just going to build a wall. I'm never going to talk about my personal life. I'm not really going to share that much of my personality with people. And, um, you know, I'll kind of just go about as a robot. He's not. You see it, it, it seeps through sometimes, but that's the part that he chooses to share.
1: It's kind of like, because he wasn't, Like, it wasn't like a Luka situation where, you know, he was the MVP of the Euro League when he was, you know, 18. And, you know, everybody knew he was going to be a top three pick going into the draft for like three years. But, like, Jokic was a second round pick. He wasn't like a highly touted prospect. Nobody thought – I mean, people certainly thought like he had a chance to be a good NBA player. Certainly nobody really thought he was going to – I'll bet even the Nuggets didn't think he could be, you know, this when they drafted him. Or else they would have drafted him. They would have found a way to draft him earlier than – in the second round, if, if, if that's how it went, but I think part of it is because he wasn't like being groomed since he was 12 to be, you know, a superstar that he kind of doesn't have that aspect of like, I need to maintain my brand. I need to be a public personality in the same way that a lot of guys who, but it's even, I think, though Sean, that.
0: I think even it's more innate in him than that. Cause you're right that he didn't, he wasn't trying there. He wasn't growing up crafting that, but I think he even still to this, to this day knows he could do those things. Like I just think he doesn't want fame. I think he genuinely wants to when he's done with basketball, kind of go back to Sambor and be famous in sambor and and nowhere else in the world, and so I think that's part of why he has put up a wall around his even his personality is that it's like I don't want to have to be even the funny guy. I don't have to be any of those things like. I'm just going to have keep those things private to me. And I, I will say there's some cultural things there as well. Like the idea of American celebrity is totally lost on him. He got in trouble, you know, a couple of years back for making the, um what did he say? No homo joke or no something homo. like that. Yeah, yeah, I and he ended that. up getting fined. And I think in his mind, that was like an example of like, yeah, this is what I don't want. I don't want my words to like have weight to them both. Like I trip up and say something wrong or or whatever. Like I don't want people to care about anything I have to say (laughs) other than basketball. You ask me why I made a pass or something. I'll give you an answer. But I don't want you to ever care about what I think or feel or what I like or don't like other than what happens on the basketball
1: court. So it seems like he kind of wants like when his career is over, he wants to kind of be like Tim Duncan where he just has his – he has his auto body shop in San Antonio where he'll go and detail cars, and that's kind of just what he does, and he's just kind of does his own thing, and he doesn't really do interviews. Tim Duncan's also really funny. Like I don't know if you saw yep. his speech when the Spurs retired his number after he retired. He's a funny guy. He just doesn't want to do it publicly.
0: They, they are such similar personalities. Like the same thing. Yeah. Everybody always talks like, I don't know when the Spurs did that. Who's the funniest guy on the team? They'd all say Tim Duncan. And you'd just be like, what? We don't see that. I mean, it's again, it would seep through every now and then. But for the most part, he would purposefully didn't show us that side. And now that he's gone, you know, he's done an interview here and there. And it's a big deal when he does it. By the way, he said it's one of his favorite players to watch. I think he said his favorite player to watch is
1: Jokic. That doesn't and surprise it, me at all.
0: It, it doesn't surprise you at all. Because, of course, it is. But I think Jokic is going to be even more gone than than tim duncan is in part because it's serbia right i mean instead of like it'll be a different country but i think even tim duncan at least kind of has a level of respect for where he belongs in the overall like nba story and that there are these responsibilities to every now and then come out from hiding and participate things night yoke i think he'll come back for his hall of fame speech and you know he might come back for a jersey retirement and maybe a time or two here to denver when he's obligated but i don't think you're going to see him pop up on a podcast every now and then and you know oh he's in the news today like i just don't think you'll hear about him
1: we're kind of still trying to feel that out with Shaden sharp who you know it's not quite the same thing because he's he's from canada which is not the same thing as being from a totally different part of the world but he's such a quiet guy and he's such a like he's such a mystery as far as like his personality and us in the media are still kind of working on getting him out of his shell a little bit but if you talk to any of his teammates they're all just like this guy's hilarious. He's always cracking everybody up. He's always joking around. He's always, you know, he's a guy that like people are kind of drawn to. So we're all just kind of still trying to see that, but he doesn't seem like he seems like he's like totally unbothered. And it's a little bit of a different situation because, you know, he did come up through like the whole AAU thing and he has, you know, more experience with like that level of hype than Jokic did when he was a kid. But like, he does seem like he's pretty unbothered by all, it. he seems pretty disinterested in doing a lot of kind of the public facing branding stuff so it's always kind of a push and pull to even like get any of these guys to show any of that kind of personality if that's not what they're inclined to
0: might become more in vogue to be honest with you I mean this these things were different in 1998 where being loud meant more money in a meaningful way but no I mean I think a lot of guys make enough money that if you want more sure you got to do it you got to play that game and you'll you know, whatever but if you don't want it like Jokic is gonna make 700 million 800 900 million dollars by the time he retires like I don't think he cares about turning $900 million into $1.5 billion. I just don't think he cares about that. So he's good. He doesn't need to share it. Shaden Sharp sounds the same way. And who knows? Maybe that becomes more and more in vogue with this upcoming generation who grow up in the social media era and are maybe less um, drawn towards it.
1: I almost think there might be kind of a backlash to the whole I have to be conscious of my brand at all times thing. Because you see what's going on with Trey Young, who that game that the Nuggets lost to the Hawks without him – was because of all this stuff that's now going on with him and Nate McMillan that's been reported on. I I almost wonder if like there's been this backlash to somebody like Trey Young who hasn't won anything and hasn't really like done a lot in the league and is still you know clearly a guy who you know from what we see and from what we hear in these types of reports is like about his brand and about all that kind of stuff and that puts a lot of people off. I wonder if some of these younger guys are are seeing that and going you know. I don't want people to hate me for that reason now. So maybe I got to be a little bit more low key. I wonder if there's something like that too.
0: Could be. I'm curious to see this next generation has a lot of interesting characters that are different. that break from tradition. So we'll see.
1: Yeah. Adam, thanks a lot for doing this again. Everybody go on YouTube. This is the easiest thing in the world to do. Go on YouTube, search DNVR, 100 Invisible Threads. You can watch this documentary for free just like any other YouTube video that you watch. And Adam, like, tell, tell tell people a little bit more about just what you guys are doing at DNVR. I had Gerald from PHNX on oh, about yeah. a month ago, so it's it's the it's the same company, it's the same type of thing. But just like tell tell people kind of what you're doing with DNVR.
0: I mean, DNVR is like unlike any other company. Um, we cover all Denver sports uh, very passionately. Uh, we've got uh, credentialed reporters covering all the four major sports here in Colorado as well as the two colleges, including Deion Sanders' CU Buffs, which is blowing up right now. I just remember we need to ask
1: Chauncey Billups about how he feels about oh, him taking that man. job because you that's his school him. too. you got to ask him, man. They're practicing I, tomorrow, so I'll probably bring it up.
0: For, for, well, yeah. Well, first of all, that that story will go viral, so that, that's just a little tip there for you. But um, Oh, yeah. But because right now, all of our Deion Sanders stuff is absolutely blown up. And uh, look, it's a, it's a really, really interesting marriage, Deion Sanders and him. So um, no, but we, you know, DNVR is really cool. We have merch. We've got a s- bunch of studios here. We own a bar. Um, we do all kinds of events. It's a very cool thing. So all things Nuggets, um, pregame, postgame show. That's what we do over here.
1: And the other two cities that you guys are in are Phoenix, who, like I said, I had Gerald on and then Chicago, where I actually just last spring when I was in Chicago for a wedding, I actually went into the CHGO offices and will gottlieb who's their bulls guy is a buddy of mine too so it's cool what you guys are doing everybody go check it out adam thanks a lot for doing this
0: thanks for having me man